we'll be reading from Acts 12, 1 through 5. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was, was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared in the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed but motioning it to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Hey, 
On the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. And the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Living God, we thank you for this word passed down to us from your servant Luke, who compiled all of these stories and crafted them in such a way that we might find hope, just as you early apostles and, and disciples found hope in the midst of darkness and ambiguity about the future. Holy Spirit, would you open this ancient word and make it alive in us today in the 21st century? Would you be with my mouth and my preaching? that I might proclaim something good and true, both for myself and for all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back after a wonderful service last week of prayer and scripture and songs topped off with some healing prayer. It was amazing. I loved seeing all of the creativity that went into that service and seeing so many faces from our congregation. But I gotta say, I'm also excited to be preaching again. You know, when I outlined my preaching plan last year, I had no idea that the coronavirus even existed, let alone would prevent us from meeting together and worshiping as a community. And trying to find the sweet spot of proclaiming God's word while realizing that the normal length of my sermons is a bit too long, you know, for those trying to uh, worship in the home if you've got small antsy kids or antsy adults. Uh, anyway, I've been trying to keep my sermons to 15 or 20 minutes, and that means some reconfiguring of how I'm approaching these texts. I'd originally planned on preaching Acts 12, 1 through 24, all in one sermon, but I'm going to split it up over two weeks. And the way that we're going to approach it this Sunday and next is by taking all of the verses in their entirety uh, each week, but I'll be highlighting different themes that derive from the text. We'll call these sermons Prison Break, Part 1 and Part 2. So creative, I, I know. Um, I bet you're on the edge of your couch right now. Um, but anyway, let's just dive into Prison Break, break Part 1. Um, and since it is Sunday, may the 4th be with you, because it's May 3rd. Um, anyway, I thought I'd open with what else? A sip of coffee and a Star Wars quote. Okay, so in the original Star Wars film, Darth Vader captures Princess Leia and believing that she has stolen the plans to the Emperor's uh, Death Star. He brings her before this evil uh, Admiral Tarkin whose smug threats reek of privilege and overconfidence. And Leia defiantly says, The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Now that's... There, there's even a chart illustrating the infamous Tarkin effect. And everybody knows if you put data on a chart and give it a name that includes effect or syndrome, it has to be true, right? Anyway, the idea is this. Darth Vader and the Emperor and the Empire, they have more ships, more troops, more organization, more power than any single group in the galaxy. On paper, they should win any battle. They should crush any enemy, and they should have no problem defeating the puny Rebel Alliance. And yet the movie's called A New Hope, and the whole story is a lesson that brute force in the hands of evil cannot ultimately defeat hope, love, friendship, and in this movie, the will of the force. <clears throat> in Acts 12, we have a similar situation. 
the entire area of Palestine was under military occupation by the Roman Empire. Roman governors ruled with little tolerance for political disturbances. So when the early church drew the protests of Jewish leaders, Roman leaders quickly wanted to crush this opposition. Now, one leader at that time was named Herod. And this guy is unique in that he had Jewish roots, but he also spent significant portions of his life in Rome. And he was really good friends with Emperor Caligula. So Luke calls him Herod. And that's sort of confusing because, let's face it, there are lots of Herods in the Gospels and in Acts. And some of them die along the way, which makes us ask, like, are they all the same guy who keeps coming back, you know, like some kind of horror movie villain or something? Like, what is going on here? Well, the waters get pretty muddy when you start looking into all the Herods, but let me just help simplify through a graphic illustration. You can see here that Herod the Great is the first Herod in the Bible. He is the Herod who we might know as King of the Jews, right? So this is Herod who was in power when Jesus was born. Herod the Great oversaw the final part of the building of the temple in Jerusalem, one of the mighty wonders of the world. And this is the Herod who tried to kill Jesus by having all the male children under two years old killed when Jesus was born. <clears throat> now Jesus and his family moved back to Palestine from hiding in Egypt when Herod the Great died. Okay, and then after him, there's Herod Antipas. This is the Herod of the Gospels. The guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the guy who left his wife and then married his sister-in-law. Yeah, this guy's a real class act, right? Okay, and then there's Herod Agrippa I. He's the guy in our story. He was no angel either. Luke probably uses the name Herod instead of Agrippa I so that the reader, like you and me, links him with the other Herods. It's so meta, right? So in the biblical narrative, Herod becomes more than a person. He becomes a symbol for the world powers in opposition to the will of God, and in opposition to the way of Jesus, and in opposition to the Spirit-filled church. As the story begins, we learn very matter-of-factly that Herod has killed James, James the brother of John, not James the brother of Jesus. James, the one Herod killed, was one of the original twelve disciples, and one of Jesus' inner circle. You probably remember over and over again the Gospel writers talking about Peter, James and John. Now this loss would have been demoralizing to the early church. And we now learn that Herod has also arrested Peter, arguably the most important apostle and the de facto leader of the church at this time in history. It appears that the empire is winning and that it is tightening its grip on the church. Luke's audience would need encouragement that despite the look of things in the moment, the power of Jesus was still on the move and very much at work among them. And frankly, you and I need that kind of encouragement too, don't we? We were locked in our homes, we're unable to gather, we're unable to have, uh, you know, visit extended family. Some of you aren't even able to work, and if you could, you might find those conditions full of unknowns and fear. You might find that you have a hard time then providing childcare in, in the interim while you begin back to work. I mean, how will all this end? Will it ever look normal again? Will normal ever look normal again? And it would be easy, and maybe some of us have, already slipped into despair from time to time. In Acts 12, it would be easy for the early church to despair. They must have been thinking, will evil win? If Herod can just kill our leaders, is this the end of the Jesus movement? 
Will there be joy again? Is God actually in control? And here we see Luke is wanting to answer these questions with an emphatic yes. God sees you. He knows what is going on. And despite what it looks like, the story is far from written. Now what's amazing is how Luke structures this chapter. The structure actually communicates the good news almost as much as the content does. So I really want to show you this. Let's take a look. There are 24 verses in Luke 12, but it's divided into three distinct sections. The main section is in the middle. It contains 14 of the 24 verses. But this main section is perfectly sandwiched on either side by five verses in front and five verses in the end. As you work through both of these book-ended sections, you'll see how the chapter works. We begin with Herod acting with violence and killing an apostle of Jesus. At the end of the story, Herod continues with his violent leadership style. He's angry with some small port towns in his province, and they were begging him for mercy. As we work through the bookends, we see in the beginning of the chapter, Herod saw that his violence toward the minority group pleased the majority group. And at the end of the chapter, Herod addresses the cities he was angry with, and they try and please him by showering him with praise and calling him a divine man. In verse 4, Peter is put in prison by Herod, and Herod was planning on killing him after the Passover. In verse 23, Herod is struck dead because he received the praise of a god and didn't give glory to the true god. In verse 5, we see that Peter was in prison, but the church was praying. And in verse 24, we read that despite all the persecution and all the power that Herod thought that he had, in the end, it was the word of God that continued to spread. In the first bookend, we see oppression, political favors, murder, death, prison, and the sum of the world powers. And yet, the church prays. In the second bookend, we see that the world powers are judged by Jesus and convicted of guilt as guilty. It's the Tarkin effect. In the Exodus, the more that Pharaoh squeezes the Israelite slaves, the more God multiplied them and created a great nation out of them. The more the religious leaders and Rome and Satan squeezed Jesus, the more they played into the hands of God by nailing the sin of the world on the cross and unleashing unstoppable light and life. And the more the world resists the gospel and the power of the Spirit, the more it will spread and liberate and bless humanity and bless creation. What good news! No matter how dark the circumstances, God is in control. No matter how uncertain the future appears to be, Jesus is still the Good Shepherd, and he will lead us toward green pastures and quiet waters and will restore our very souls. The bookends themselves contain this good news. Now let's dig into the main section for a little bit more. So the church is praying, but so far nothing seems to be happening. You know, in those days, prison wasn't a punishment as much as it is in our day. Prisons were mainly used to hold people until a trial, at which time they would either be released, or they might be exiled, or they might be fined, or they might be executed. Those were kind of the choices. You didn't usually stay in prison very long. Now, Peter had been in prison for days, and the text says that all of this happens now, the story that we're telling, all of this happens on the very night 
when Herod was about to bring him forward. Translation, Peter is in serious trouble. It's the night before his execution. And in the height of this tension, God intervenes. And he sends this angel who somehow breaks Peter out while he's chained in between two Roman guards. Roman guards in those days worked three-hour shifts and they worked in pairs, which meant they rarely would fall asleep, right? Like you're only three-hour shifts, you're working with a buddy who's, who's constantly trying to keep you awake. In fact, falling asleep on watch in that world would mean the death penalty or such severe beatings that historians note on multiple occasions when Roman guards who got caught falling asleep actually escaped and went into self-exile into India or even further east just to escape punishment. The point is that this is a miraculous prison break. Somehow the angel uses special ninja powers or something to get Peter out while the guards remain clueless. Peter doesn't even believe what's happening and he assumes that it must be a dream or a vision until he's well past the prison gate and into the open streets. He makes his way to Mary's house. And I know there's lots of Marys in these stories. This Mary is Mary, the mother of John Mark. And John Mark is a guy who's later going to become a traveling companion of Barnabas, and he may be the author of the Gospel of Mark. Mary's house was used as one of the meeting places for the early church in Jerusalem. And she was likely a wealthy lady, and we know that by the fact that she lived in the upper part of the city, that's the expensive part. She had a big enough house to host this prayer gathering. She had a servant, and her husband isn't mentioned in the story, which probably means that she was a widow. So Peter knocks on the door while the house church is inside praying, and a servant girl comes to the door. Her name is Rhoda, which is Greek for rose or flower. Uh, and fun fact, uh, Washington State flower, the rhododendron, right? The root is Rhoda in there, right? Okay. So Rhoda hears Peter's voice, but in her joy and amazement, she leaves him outside the locked door while she runs to tell the church. The scene is kind of one of comedy, right? Peter, the great apostle, has been busted out of prison by God. He's, and God has, has busted him out because he's heard the prayers of the church, okay? But the church finds out that Peter's been let out of prison, the church finds out that their prayer has been answered and they don't even believe it could be him. The text says that they say, ah, now it's his angel or something or his spirit. In other words, they probably thought that Peter was already dead. And here's the good news. And bless Luke for telling us this story. Peter, the great apostle, doesn't believe the angel when he's first broken out of prison. The church gathered praying, doing all the right religious things, don't believe it when God actually answers their prayers. And in the middle of these two failed Peter and failed church is a servant girl with a Greek name, likely a foreign slave or a house servant, who is the only one with eyes to see and ears to hear the reality of God working among them. Now, if you were going to invent a story to sell, on, uh, to sell other people on your new religion or on Christianity as a movement, you would not throw shade on one of your great leaders or on the church like that. But this story has all the marks of authenticity, and I love it because it tells me this, that God can and does work through us anyway. He works through our prayers, even when it feels like we're going through the motions. He works through his church, even when his church is afraid or lacks faith or has lost hope. He is faithful. 
And I've said it so many times in sermons before, I may as well say it again, a quote from Dale Bruner, I'm pretty sure, who writes, don't put your faith in your faith. The strength of your faith is not the litmus test for whether or not Jesus loves you. The quality of your faith in any given moment is not the prerequisite for God to be faithful to you. And I think there are two responses for us that lead to encouragement and hope. The first is this. Keep going. Keep getting up in the morning. Keep praying. Keep studying the scriptures. Keep finding the next good thing to do to bless somebody else. Keep stumbling in the direction of Jesus and his call on your life because he will work in and through you, even when you don't feel at your best, even when you have doubts, even when you feel like you've given up. The second is this. As we prepare to receive Jesus afresh around the communion table in just a moment, let's begin with silent confession. Confession of the ways in which we may have given up. Confession of the way in which we may have grown lukewarm or even turned to other sources other than Jesus for our life and for our purpose and for our meaning. You know, Jesus didn't scold Peter or the church for their lack of faith in the story. He simply advanced the gospel in and through them. And I want to trust for you and for me that he'll be gentle with us as well. Let me just lead us into a time of silence, and then the video will transition right into communion. <laughs> 